This is Jordi Hendricks, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. We're developing a community where knowledge and education is respected. All right, here we are, the middle of May. Hope all of you are doing well, staying healthy and active. And if you're choosing to recreate in the backcountry environment on some snow, hopefully you're doing so responsibly and keeping in mind some of the considerations of of springtime avalanche issues. Um, probably some wet loose issues out there. Uh, maybe some wet slab issues, glide cracks going on. Um, really, when I head out in the springtime, I'm thinking about timing. So I'm getting an early start and wrapping things up fairly early. Hopefully hitting that corn window when it's that, that perfect peel away corn, not too sloppy. Not too sticky, but just right. Um, so, hope everybody's still turning if, if you're still into that sort of thing. Or maybe you got the road bike or mountain bike out, maybe the golf clubs, something like that. Hopefully, you're getting outside enjoying the fresh air, maybe getting some things done around the house. I just finished painting my house. That was a good project for the, the quarantine times. Um, but today, I'm excited to bring you a an episode of the podcast featuring Dr. Yordi Hendricks. Yordi is originally from New Zealand, and he's currently the director of the Snow and Avalanche Lab at Montana State University uh, through the Earth Science Department. Yordi and I have a great discussion about some of the ins and outs of both the undergraduate and the graduate programs at Montana State within the Earth Science Department. Um, focusing on snow science, we talk. He, he talks, I should say, about the um, some of the things that somebody applying for one of these programs should be thinking about. Um, some of the rigors of the the program and the realities, and then also some of the the payoffs of the program and and some of the success stories of of especially the graduate program. Um, students that, that have been doing some great research that have benefited the snow and avalanche community. And then he talks about where these people go from there and, and some of the job placements that they've found themselves in um, throughout the snow and avalanche arena. Yordi um, also talks a bit about some of the, the research that he's really interested in, um, mainly the idea of positionality and he'll get into that a little bit more. So I'm really excited to share this great interview with you with Jordi Hendricks. Uh, but first, I just want to give a shout out to all the sponsors of the show. Thank you so much for your support. Um, TAS by MND, makers of Gazx, Gazflex, Daisy Bell, Obelx remote avalanche control systems. These remote avalanche control systems are more effective and safer for avalanche workers out there. Um, you can check out their website at www.tas.fr. There is an English version there as well. And Ten Barrel Brewing out of Bend, Oregon, just up the road from me. Huge sponsor of the show. And we can do it without you. Appreciate you. Um, next time you're perusing the beer section at your local grocery, um, give 10 Barrel a try if you haven't. 
Um, I, I'd suggest maybe the Profuse Juice. It's a hazy IPA uh, packed with a, a mouthful of flavors. So check that one out. And last but not least is Interwest Insurance. My good friends at Interwest Insurance, thank you very much for your support. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the interview with Yordi Hendricks. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Yordi. Great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming over and uh, being here in Bozeman. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to be in Bozeman and MSU. It's nice to see the Snow and Avalanche Lab this morning. I was hoping you could introduce yourself. Who is Yordi Hendricks? Where is he from? And and how did he get here today? Sure. Yeah, so I've been at Montana State nine years now. Uh, came here in late 2010 uh, to start this position here. Uh, prior to that, I was in New Zealand. I was working for an organization called NIWA, National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research. Uh, that was sort of a, a government slash commercial uh, consulting and, and research organization. Uh, and in that role, I was kind of in charge of kind of most of the snow things. So uh, one of the things I set up that I'm really excited about was a national snow monitoring network. Uh, New Zealand didn't have like a snow tail system. Mm. Uh, they now have a small one. It's nothing like snow tail. I wish it was as big as that. Um, but we have some observations from high elevations that can record uh, seasonal snow uh, and also alpine meteorology. So we get a good idea about what's happening in the mountains, uh, which is especially important given uh, the water resources in New Zealand uh, and also climate change and that mountains are, are warming quicker in some of these areas as well. Um, I did quite a lot of hydrology work there. I uh, did a lot of climate change work, did a bit of snow uh, and did a, did a tiny, tiny little bit of avalanche work. And really the reason that I'm here now is that I wanted to do more of that avalanche work. Uh, and I got a taste of it when I came out in 2008 to work with Carl Birkeland here in Bozeman. And uh, I was working as a, as a research scientist and got some funding to support a, an extended trip and came out to Bozeman for about eight weeks and worked with Carl for, I think, six or seven of those and took a couple of weeks of holiday and uh, was just blown away by, by the location of Bozeman, the access to the mountains, uh, the community here, uh, and was like, wow. You know, if, if the right job ever came up in Bozeman, I'd, I'd, I'd go for that. Like, it's a pretty amazing spot. Uh, and then about a year later, a job came up and we applied and, and uh, ended up here. So that's sort of the short version about sort of how I got here and uh, why I sound funny and uh, where that accent's from. <laughs> and, and so did you grow up skiing and, and playing in the snow? I did. I did. So um, I didn't actually learn to ski until I was about 12. Mm -hmm. uh, it was on a, I think it was a, I can't even remember what it was. It was like a sports trip or a scout camp or something like that. And I went up, I was living in Wellington at the time, uh, which is in the bottom of the North Island of New Zealand, and went up to Ruapehu, which is a volcano in the center part of the island, about five hours drive north, and and just, just loved it. Absolutely loved it. I'd always been in, big into hiking, done a lot of, uh, we call it tramping over there in New Zealand, but mm -hmm. sort of multi-day backpacking trips. Um, and had been getting into the snow a little bit more, but didn't really have the skill set there yet. Uh, so I got exposed to skiing um, and, and just really started to enjoy skiing and getting more into mountaineering after that. I did a number of, uh, of mountaineering classes and courses and really from about sort of 14, 15, 16 onwards, I would spend as much time as I could in the mountains. 
uh, and try and, you know, get up and climb and, you know, sometimes very modest uh, peaks, but it was just about getting outside and being up on the ridges and getting up in the mountains. And then slowly as I got better and, you know, had, had the means and the time, I started doing a little bit more ski mountaineering. Um, I couldn't really ski. I think I still ski like a mountaineer. Uh, no offense to those mountaineers out there, but, you know, you ski anything, but maybe not as, as gracefully as, as others. Um, ski it with a big pack, you get it done. Um, and through that time, I just started becoming more and more aware of what I didn't know about the snow. So it was this great environment to be in. Uh, I felt like I could control or at least had some idea about crevasses, uh, about when to get off routes for rockfall, uh, a little bit about avalanches, but not really enough. And then as I progressed into more winter mountaineering, I started realizing I was way out of my depth. And uh, we got lucky on a few occasions. And it just really sparked that natural curiosity and what's going on in the mountains? How can I be out here safely? How can I explore this more? Uh, and, and how can I get to that route without killing myself? So uh, that really got me going on the avalanche side of things. Mm. Well, you, it certainly seems like you have a pretty inquisitive nature, and I'm sure that's kind of what helped bring you to to some of the research that you've been doing um, around snow and avalanches. So let's talk a little bit about the snow and avalanche program here at MSU, both the undergraduate and the graduate degrees. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that really drew me to MSU was the opportunity to take on this, this snow science program here at Earth Sciences. And what's really unique is that we have a earth sciences degree. And within that degree, we have multiple options. We have a geology option. We have a paleontology option. So, you know, sort of people that are interested in dinosaurs and things. We have a geography option. And then we also have the snow science option. Uh, and the snow science option really to me is a, is a quantitative geoscience curriculum. And what I mean by that is that it's, a, it's an earth science focused curriculum with an emphasis on mountain processes and snow. Uh, and one of the, the criticisms of, of geographers in the past has been that, you know, they're really good about systems thinking, but they couldn't always quantify that or, or enumerate that or, or put an equation around that or script that in any way. And what I think is really exciting about the undergraduate snow science program is that, you know, this isn't just for students to come here and go skiing. You know, this isn't just a, hey, we're going to go play in the mountains and we're going to call it a degree. You know, students turn up. We ask them to do Calc 1, Calc 2, Physics 1, Physics 2, Chemistry 1, Chemistry 2, Stats to a 400 level. You know, these are these are hard classes, you know, and, and you've got to be really passionate about the mountains. You've got to be really passionate about snow, but you've also got to be prepared to get the quantitative rigor to actually address the world problems in snow science. So I'm excited that we're sort of blending that quantitative rigor with the passion for the mountains. Hmm. Um, and sometimes when new students come, it's a little bit of a shock. They're like, oh, kind of thought we'd just go out in the snow straight away. And I was like, well, we will. Let's, let's, we're going to get there, but let's get a foundation of good natural science knowledge so that we can understand what we're working with, and then we're going to go out into the snow. And one of the highlights in that whole uh, degree package that we offer here uh, is the Earth 450 class. So Earth 450 is snow accumulation and dynamics. And basically it's a snow and avalanche, but snow science focused class. Uh, and I've been teaching that since I've been here. Um, and it's a highlight for me because it's a small class. Uh, we cap it at 16 because of health and safety reasons. We're in the mountains. Uh, we're in avalanche terrain, so you kind of want to keep your numbers uh, low. I have a TA that assists me th uh, to teach that. And every Friday, we'll get out and we'll go up, typically up to Bridger Bowl, we'll head up to the backcountry, uh, and we'll go do snow science experiments. 
So we'll start off really simple. Let's go dig a snow pit. Let's look at stratigraphy. Let's measure density. But instead of going out like you would in the backcountry and measure density once, we're going to measure it in triplicate. We're going to measure it across five different devices. And we're going to compare how good these different measurement devices are. So it kind of really takes, you know, like a, like a level one or a level two where you get out in the backcountry and, and do a snow pit, but takes it to that next level where we look at the science behind what's going on. And then through the lectures, we explore what we've seen. Um, and what I really enjoy about that class is that some of our students have done very little in the backcountry. And that sort of, that explosion of learning, you know, the first day they go in the backcountry, we give them this big kit that I showed you in the, in the lab uh, with, you know, all this great scientific equipment. And halfway through the lab, it's got snow everywhere and they've lost their probe and their pencil's gone and their notebook's wet. And, you know, things just aren't going right for them because they're just so far into that environment. And then by week two or week three, they're digging these beautiful, crisp, straight pits, taking really good, robust field notes, and just seeing that explosion in learning and growth by exposing them to that every single week and getting them into the mountains. So that's that's a, a huge highlight for me to be able to teach that and, and see that learning. Uh, and then also see some really strong students come through that have already got like a level two, uh, have maybe been uh, pro ski patrolling already and are interested in getting a, a snow science a science degree to then take that next step into graduate school. Mm. And so let's talk a little bit about the graduate program here as well. The, the undergraduate sounds sounds like a great program and, and benefits a lot of students. But let's talk a little bit about some of the graduate student programs that, that have some research going on right now. Yeah, so the graduate program uh, is, is, is based here uh, uh, in the Snow and Avalanche Lab here in Earth Science. And, uh, you know, what I feel very fortunate about is the caliber of the students that we attract. Um, you know, there are numerous snow hydrology programs throughout the West that do a fantastic job at educating graduate students in snow hydrology, snow modeling, uh, you know, that, that, that look at various aspects of snow and climate in the cryosphere. The point of difference that we have is that we're really focused on avalanches. You know, we, we sometimes to our detriment, funding is sometimes harder to find if you're so narrow in your scope. But really what I've tried to do is focus it and keep it on avalanches because I think that's our point of difference and that's our point of strength. So we get anywhere between 20 and 50 applicants a year for the graduate program. Of that, I typically take two, maybe three per year at the most, just because of capacity to sort of supervise and kind of really give them a, a good opportunity in this program. Um, so what that means is that we can be really selective. Mm. You know, we, we get we get amazing applicants, and I'd love to take 10 of them probably a year. Uh, but we really have to be quite selective about who we can say yes to, just because of the numbers and the capacity issues that we have. So most of my students that are in the program or have been through the program in the past come in with, you know, a really good undergraduate degree. It doesn't have to be in snow science. Um, you know, I've had uh, people with uh, mathematics degrees. I've had people with psychology degrees. Uh, had people with their science degrees. So it can be a range of different things that are in there. Um, but I want them to have some quantitative skills. And I want that undergraduate degree and their skill set to be aligned with kind of what they're hoping to do. So, for example, um, if a student approaches me before they apply and they say, hey, I'd, I'm really excited about doing this modeling project. And, you know, I want to run this snowpack model from the Swiss and then I want to couple it with this atmospheric model. 
and they've never done any quantitative modeling, I'm going to say, well, I'm not sure if that's really the best fit for you. I mean, maybe you can learn that and maybe we can get there. Um, but what about an idea like this? And we kind of tailor a project that fits their strengths mm. or what they can learn. Um, one of my students uh, had a meteorology degree. He's now a forecaster uh, up in Alaska. That's Kyle Van Persen. So he came in with a really strong meteorology meteorology degree. Um, he then was interested in doing this coupling of an atmospheric model to a snowpack model. And we talked about where he was going to go with it. And I was like, yeah, this this fits. This makes sense. Like you have the right skill set to come in here and to thrive and really do a great job in that. So it's it's getting great students uh, with fantastic backgrounds that are really motivated to be in the program uh, and also often come with a, a, a huge wealth of field experience. So a number of my students have either been guides, uh, are working on, on the guiding track, uh, have been in ski patrol, uh, have, have spent some time in the mountains. And that, I think, is really important because when I'm looking at students and I'm thinking about who I'd take on, I will almost always take a student who has the field experience opposed to the student that's got the perfect 4.0 GPA uh, but has maybe never been in the snow. You know, mm. I, I really want someone who can think in an applied way and can take the science and, and has the, the raw skill to do the science uh, and can be trained to progress that knowledge, but also is is safe and capable to be in the mountains to do that work. Uh, and also brings that perspective. You know, I think spending time in the mountains, uh, seeing things that, that, that intrigue you, uh, that you're puzzled about, uh, that you want to learn more about, really trig- triggers that curiosity uh, that I think you need to be successful for a graduate student. Uh, it's, a, it's a two plus year master's project. If you don't love it, if you're not absolutely dying to find out that final answer or to come to an answer, then it's just going to be trench warfare. You're just going to hate it every moment of the day. So I really want students to be uh, internally curious uh, and and continue to strive to find those answers. Uh, And and I've been very, very fortunate to have some some excellent students over the years that uh, have been a pleasure to work with. Do most students come with a specific research topic in mind? Yeah, I, uh, from experience, a lot of students have a, have a general idea about where they want to go. So they have sort of, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in, in maybe spatial variability. So mm-hmm. how does the snow vary over time and space? Uh, and I'm interested in that based at the slope scale or something like that. So they've got a general idea about where they're interested, but maybe not exactly how to formulate the research question mm-hmm. and how to execute that research. Um, so I try to work with a student as much as I can to sort of say, well, tell me some of the things that you're interested in. Uh, and, you know, a student applies by January 15 of the year before they want to come in. So, for example, if they want to start in fall of 2020, they would apply in January of, of 2020. But the students that typically get in have already been in touch with me since August of 2019 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've been bouncing papers back and forth and we've been talking already via email. And really what I'm trying to do is to say, OK, I, I like the idea you're going. But here are some papers you should read that have kind of done pieces of that. Uh, or have you thought about doing it this way? To really try and stimulate their thinking so that when they arrive here in the fall, they're hitting the ground running. And they already have a pretty good idea about where they're going to go. They've read maybe 15, 20, 30 papers uh, that discuss some of the ideas around there. Um, and, and they've got a kind of a step forward where they can go. The, the, the challenging piece is then operationalizing that into a research project, right? So... Um, most of us have, have have great ideas. You know, we can we can come up with millions of ideas, but it's about 
putting it in a small enough box that you can manage to get it done in a two-year time frame. So it's finding out how do you get a project with an idea? How do you ask a specific question in there that's testable? How do you use a scientific method to really execute that process? Uh, and then how do we get to an output that is manageable within the time frame that you can do? Uh, and, and that sometimes means that we just have to take smaller chunks out of this idea. Uh, and then we have maybe multiple students that take this byte and then the next student can take the next byte and we can kind of build on each other's work. Uh, and I think that kind of mimics what we want to be doing in science. We want to work on, uh, we want to stand on the shoulders of those that come before us uh, and keep on building that knowledge as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. There's no kind of final end point, is there? There's, there's really not. I mean, I think, you know, the more times we ask a question, the more questions we come up with. Right. Uh, there's sometimes an end point to a specific question, a very nuanced specific question. But I think, you know, that's what makes snow science so interesting is that we, we still know so, relatively so little about it. You know, it's a, it's a medium that changes so rapidly in space and time. So there's huge amounts of work that we still need to be doing in terms of understanding snow, snow properties, snow behavior, snow over time, snow climate interactions, uh, snow terrain interactions. But then also where, you know, I think where the rubber hits the road is how we as humans interact with that medium. Uh, and I think there's, 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 there's lifetimes of work in, in really both of those areas that we need to be exploring. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly do enjoy hearing about the practicality of the research, and it seems like you're pretty focused on making sure that that's happening with some of these research projects. And then moving forward with the with the with your students, you know, fulfilling jobs within the snow and avalanche arena. And so, where are some of your students finding employment after they get their masters here? Yeah, so uh, we've we've had great success with our students getting fantastic jobs. You know. Uh, I'm really pleased when a student approaches me, wants to work with me. And, you know, I often ask them, well, where do you want to be in five years? What do you want to be doing? Like, why, why are you doing, what is the drive here? And most of my students want to enter into the avalanche forecasting world. They want to get a forecasting position. Uh, they might want to do a guiding and forecasting position or something like that. You know, and we've, we've had some really good success there. So if I think of some recent students, um, you know, we've got Ian Hoyer. He's a forecaster here at the GNFAC in Bozeman. Uh, we've got Alex Marenthal, who you just spoke to the other day, mm-hmm. also here at GNFAC. Uh, we've got Diana Sally. She's just finished up last year, uh, is now a forecaster with Avalanche Canada and working towards her guiding certifications. Uh, Kyle Van Persen, he's, he's not in the Avalanche forecasting world. He's a meteorological weather forecaster, uh, works for the National Weather Service. Uh, up in Anchorage, but he's also the avalanche liaison person. So he still has a very close connection with the snow and avalanche world. So he kind of blends the best of both worlds, I think, in that way. Um, We have uh, Holt Hancock, uh, ski patroller, came back and did a master's here. He's now a PhD student over in Svalbard in Norway. Uh, We've got John Sykes, who's doing a PhD with uh, Pascal up at Simon Fraser. So, you know, when I when I glance back and think about it, I'm risking missing or forgetting some of my students here. So I apologize to any of you that are listening that I've forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think we've got some great outcomes there. You know, we're, we're educating really great students that are doing cool projects that are then taking that next step either in their industry and making a big difference to our industry. They're fantastic forecasters. They're great people in our community. Or they're taking another step into academia and, you know, who knows where they're going to go. And I'm excited to see and, and kind of follow where those students will go into the future. Uh, so I, 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 I enjoy that. And, uh, you know, 
fundamentally that's that's why why they've come through this program is to to get to where they want to go and i'm happy to help them on that journey well it's certainly raising the bar of legitimacy and professionalism within the industry and um I'm, i might be in trouble in the future because i don't know if i can make it through that many calculus classes <laughs> <laughs> but uh no it seems like some some great work that you all are doing here um Maybe talk a bit about some of the, the current research that's going on. And, and, you know, I Googled, you know, your name and research paper. And I think just in 2018 alone, you, your name landed on 10 papers. And so you have a unique position here where you get to kind of have your hands in lots of different projects and maybe talk about some of your your most favorite ones that you enjoy the most. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, so... Those those papers you mentioned, they're, they're certainly not all uh, by me as as lead author. So, I, mm. as you correctly say, I, I collaborate and work with a, with a lot of different groups, um, and I think that's probably the most exciting part of this role is having the opportunity to uh, work with some really good students. Uh, and not all students will publish, but a lot of the students will. Um, but also to sort of work with with, with other groups that. Uh, have heard about our work and want to collaborate with us and, and we can do some collaborative work together. So um, some of the things that I'm excited about right at the moment is we've had a, a we're in the third year of a fourth four-year research grant uh, from the Norwegian Research Council uh, and that that grant is funding a project that's called the White Heat Project. And the White Heat Project is a collaborative project with a group in Norway based out of Tromsø uh, in northern Norway, right up above the, the Arctic Circle, there, working with a with a woman called Andrea Manberg, and she's a behavioral economist by training, and uh, she heard a presentation that a colleague of mine gave on our ski tracks project. So, ski tracks was a project we started about five years ago, and the idea with ski tracks is that we were asking people to GPS track where they moved in the backcountry, and then they would. Uh, follow that up with a survey that would talk about who they were and how they made decisions. And the idea with the, the GPS track is that, you know, when you when you make a choice, your track is the geographic expression of the sum of all your decisions. We don't necessarily know why you made those decisions, but that's the, that's the outcome of all those decision points. So by looking at the track, we can take a, a geographic view of your decisions, right? And we can pass that out and we can look at the slope angle and the aspect and uh, the curvature and the, the route choice that you took in that given terrain. If we then also have a survey that asks who you are and maybe some questions around how you made those decisions, we might get an idea about kind of how you got to where you got to and how you made that line in the mountains that you did. And by doing that, we start to kind of get to this real-world understanding of how decisions are made in the backcountry. So we did that sort of five, six years ago. Jerry and I were working on that predominantly, uh, Jerry Johnson, who you spoke to yesterday. And what was really cool about that work is that we could document really nicely how people moved in the backcountry, who they were, were uh, and, and where they went. The piece that was missing was why, right? So it, it's nice to know where you went and, and who went there, but what's going on in their mind? Why do they, what motivated them to make that decision? So the White Heat Project really kind of takes off from there and it tries to address the why. And what's really exciting about this project is that it's a collaboration between uh, Andrea, behavioral economist, uh, Alden Hetland, who's a psychologist, myself as a snow scientist, and then also Jerry Johnson as a political scientist. And 
what I think this really illustrates is that we need a multifaceted team to address this very multifaceted issue. And that if the same sorts of people ask the same types of questions, we end up with the same types of results. Mm. So bringing this much more diverse team together to look at this issue, we've been able to leverage some some really cool uh, theoretical and, and, and sort of paradigm changing ideas around how you think about this. And, and one of the big areas that we've leveraged is this behavioral economics world. Uh, and behavioral economists are known for understanding how and why you make decisions typically in a, in a, in a sort of a, a consumerism type world. Like, why did you buy that can of beans? Well, you bought it because it was placed just below eye level and it's got the nice red label. And it kind of, you know, and it kind of builds off that sort of idea and, and it looks at cost and consequence. So in the White Heat Project, what we're able to do is kind of leverage some of those theories and paradigms, but apply them to decision making in the backcountry. So it's like, hey, why don't we use some of these great ideas from a really well-established science and apply them to our world and use that lens to try and understand how and why people make decisions. And that's all folded into a standardized data set, right? That's right. The standard, standardized data set using uh, theories that are pretty well-established in behavioral economics. Um, and, and also, I just love the rigor that comes with that. So, mm. you know, if I sit around and, and talk with, with other earth scientists, for example, other snow scientists, there are sometimes things that we will do or say that we won't even question from one another. We're just like, yeah, no, that, that seems right. We've always done it that way. Or, or, and, and it probably is fine. But when you start working with people from other disciplines, they'll check you. They'll be like, well, hang on a second. What's that based on? And you're going to go back and scratch your head and you're like, well, I remember reading that somewhere. Well, what was that based on? You go back to your fundamentals and you're like, well, actually, we can prove that. And, uh, well, I thought we could prove that, but maybe we're not quite as positive about that. It's just an assumed part of what we do. So there's other kind of nuances that we can get at. So it's refreshing to work with a group like that. Uh, it brings in new ideas. It challenges your existing ideas. Uh, and I think most exciting is that, you know, if you bring in new people to the same problem, you can hopefully come up with some new answers to that. Mm. One of the areas that we've been working on specifically is this idea around positionality. Uh, and positionality is this idea that uh, we, we care about our relative consumption opposed to our absolute consumption. And economics use this mostly for material goods. It's this idea of keeping up with the Joneses, this idea that if your neighbor suddenly buys a, a nicer truck than you have, your truck hasn't lost any value, but you suddenly feel relatively worse off because your neighbor's got this great truck with big tires and all the racks and ready to go, right? So what we see in the economics world is that people that are positional care about that and it influences how they, how they consume and how they buy and how they're motivated to do things. And one of the things that we've been exploring is whether positionality is an issue in, in, in the leisure activity. Do we get positional about our choice of ski run, about our risk, and how does that place us within our cohort, within our society? And some of the early work that we've done on this, we've looked at, um, first of all, trying to document is someone positional, and then using this to work out if they are positional, does that equate to a difference in terms of risk perception and also tolerance towards taking riskier choices? And we see it does. So we see that someone being positional in the backcountry, someone aspiring to ski steeper lines uh, that feels less well off 
you know, relatively speaking, if somebody else is doing more than they are and they're doing less, changes how they perceive and, and act on risk. So I think that's that to me is is just you know spine chilling is the fact that you know we we in avalanche education we focus so much on understanding you know this is the procedure but how we go through to dig a snowpit this is how we choose safe terrain this is how we uh, do a, a companion rescue and, and we absolutely need to know those things we need to know snow we need to know how to travel in terrain we need to do companion rescue. But we really don't talk about any of these other sort of psychological factors that you know most of us aren't even aware of. Uh, and few of us that have read a little bit more are kind of becoming more aware of it, but it's not part of our skill set that we're teaching our students to think about as a really critical part about how we make decisions in the backcountry. And so I, when you talk about this, I kind of think of the term fear of missing out, right? Right. And so, and how social media might play into that and, and you know, our, our motivations when, our, when we're in the mountains. And I think that's a really important thing to, to better understand both for ourselves and for the general backcountry population, right? Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, the other part that kind of taps into is this sort of awareness of 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 ourself our decision making but also the consequences of people around us especially as our backcountry is seeing more and more users and you know i think for a long time there you could potentially get away with making a bad choice you could maybe trigger an avalanche and something would happen but really you are out there with just yourself and a Mm -hmm. few other buddies and you kind of get away with that and increasingly we're seeing more and more people in the backcountry so it's kind of i think the consequences of poor decisions are now magnified more so than they were before. Uh, at the same time, I think it's also worth noting uh, kind of how well as an industry I think we're doing if we look at our avalanche fatality statistics. So, you know, we, we don't fully understand what our usage is doing. Um, Carl Birkland and, and uh, Ethan Green and, and uh, a few others wrote a paper that tried to examine this issue and their estimates were something like an eightfold increase in the last 15 years of backcountry usage. And yet our fatalities are level, if not going down. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a real testament to the fact that we're doing collectively as an industry an amazing job. We're getting the word out there. People are listening to forecasts. Uh, people are getting education. People are making good choices. So I think, you know, we, we do need to think about how we can continue to improve that. And I think some of these decision-making aspects are really important, but we should also stop and, and, and acknowledge how far we have come as an industry and, and really give thanks to all those people that have worked so hard in, in making that happen. Well said. Yeah, and if, if folks want to learn a little bit more about this decision-making through positionality, there's a paper that you co-authored, I think, with Jerry and Andrea. That's right. Um, called Keeping Up with Jeremy Jones, and maybe I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes of this. Yeah, that, that sounds great. Yeah, that's a, that's a um, what we call sort of a popular article. It's something that's written uh, a little bit more uh, – digestible uh, than, a, than, a, than a peer-reviewed article. Um, so if people are interested, that's certainly a great way to start and kind of get their thinking about um, kind of how this works and, and, and why it matters. Right. The, um, you know, the other areas that I'm excited about is, is some of the recent work that uh, my students have, have been working on. Uh, and I'm just going to go, I could spend hours on this and talk about a, you know, a whole number of my students, but just a couple that come to mind that uh, I think are really exciting that we're just working on publishing at the moment. And one is the, the work by Diana Sally, 
Diana was a master's student here. She's now a, a forecaster up at Avalanche Canada. And her work was interested in using a time-lapse camera to document terrain use by people in the backcountry. And what we had is this time-lapse camera that was focused at a, looking at a backcountry area on uh, the uh, southern boundary of Bridger Bowl here in Bozeman, Montana. And the camera would take a photo every 10 seconds. And in that photo, we could just see a little black dot. And that little black dot represented someone. And the, the benefit of this approach was that if you stand at a trailhead or you stand at a boundary, you can find out who the person is. You can ask them where they're going. You can maybe get them to GPS track where they're going. And this is the work that John Sykes has been doing and also our ski tracks was doing. But not everybody will do it. And you're not out there every day. So whenever you a sampling like that, you end up with this sort of convenient sample, either spatially, so at certain locations where you can get to easily, or temporally. So you're not out there every day, so you're only getting the sample every few days or on certain types of days. So the idea with the camera was, hey, let's try and sample everyone that's out there rather than just when we're out there. And the camera has its limitations. It doesn't work when it's cloudy. Uh, it doesn't work when it's dark, right? So unless you're tracking head torches. Um, but, you know, there are some limitations there too. But on clear days where you get good visibility, you can see all these little black dots on the photo. And because you're taking photos every 10 seconds, you can then link black dot one to black dot two, which is now a few meters down the slope, to black dot three, which is a few meters down the slope. And Diana developed a, a, a series of, of, of processes or algorithms that would automatically detect when there was a change in the image. So it was like a pixel change detection uh, process. And then once she detected all the changes, she had a time series of change points on this image. And then she could also take an oblique image that we've taken from, an, from, a, from a distance and basically stretch and warp it into three dimensions so that we had XYZ points for each of those locations. And once you have the XYZ points, you can then extract the terrain parameters that go with each of those points. So then you can say, hey, point number seven at timestamp X was exactly at this lat long, which represents this slope angle, this curvature, this type of forest cover. And then you can look at all those terrain parameters and compare days of low hazard to moderate hazard to considerable hazard and compare and look at the difference between the entire group choice, like everyone that was out there on low hazard days versus moderate hazard days versus considerable hazard days. So I think her work was really cool in terms of developing a, a workflow to actually go from these oblique images to actually getting geo-reference data points, uh, but also to allow us to explore how does, it, how does the, the collective move? How does the collective behave? Not just those that uh, take the time to download the app and send you already an email for Ski Tracks project. You know, those are people that are really engaged, right? Those are people that you would hope by and large are doing a, a pretty good job, right? They're generally going to be professionals, uh, the more educated population. But what about the people that's just occasionally going in the backcountry, that are taking the quick lap off the side of the ski area? that might not even be aware that they're in the backcountry. What, what does their terrain choice look like? How are they moving in the backcountry? Uh, and I think that's a really important group of that population because they're maybe not the group that are willing to go and seek avalanche education. They're maybe not the ones that are already, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. They're already kind of in our community. 
So that allowed us to see the differences between different avalanche hazard days and how their terrain choices changed. And was there a correlation between uh, maybe things getting pushed further and further from the boundary or to, towards more hazardous terrain or what sort of correlations were were yeah, there are, found. there are a few interesting things happening in this particular area, mainly because you're immediately adjacent to Bridger Bowl. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we were seeing is that uh, people were taking you know these quick shots into the backcountry and then coming back into the boundary. It's marked. Uh, it should be fairly obvious to most people that you are leaving that boundary. There's a big sign there that says you're doing that. Um, but I think some people aren't fully aware of what that means. And and to get to this terrain, you have to ride a lift that you have to have a beacon on. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So you have to use the Slushman's lift uh-huh. and access the Slushman's lift is by beacon. So there's a beacon checker. Uh, they used to enforce uh, a shovel and probe. Uh, they no longer enforce that. Uh, people that are going kind of purposely hiking along that ridge and going further out, by and large, do have beacon shovel and probe mm-hmm. and, and a partner. So they have effective rescue, you know, not just the beacon and probe. You also need someone with you. Um, but we we also saw a lot of people that are just kind of doing this this quick sort of poaching lap mm-hmm. off the side. And I think a lot of those people, and, and John Sykes' work sort of corroborates this, is that there's not necessarily this awareness around what does the backcountry mean? You know, there's sort of this idea that, well, we're right by Bridger Bowl. If something happened, Bridger is probably going to come and help us. And, and the reality is, as soon as you cross that line, you're in the backcountry, 100%. And Bridger Bowl and the patrol are going to want to help you. They're going to want to come out there as soon as they can. But now it becomes a county-level search and rescue exercise. So they've got to get approval from the county, uh, the sheriff, the search and rescue have to be uh, operated. And it, you could be out there for quite a while. So if you're buried in an avalanche and your partner hasn't helped you, organized search and rescue is probably going to be there too late if, you're, uh, if you don't have a, have a good airway. Um, so kind of this awareness around, you know, ski area boundary, straight into backcountry, looking at where those tracks were, but then also looking at the other tracks where people had purposely hiked a long way, uh, were likely more aware that they were in the backcountry. Mm. And then we saw that there were variations in their track choices as a function of that danger. So I think that was really cool to see where, again, you know, we think about avalanche accidents. We want to minimize avalanche accidents. Every fatality is a tragedy, but they're actually relatively rare. And a lot of people are making, by and large, fairly sensible choices out there. Could they be better? Yes. Uh, Could we continue to get more information out there? Certainly. But we're not all going out there and, and dying in avalanches. So I think there's also a good news story in here that we're seeing a lot of good behavior, uh, that we're seeing uh, good communication, that the avalanche forecasting centers are doing a good job of getting their word out there. And by and large, people are, uh, we're, we're developing a community where knowledge and education is respected, right? And I think that's a, that's a really critical uh, point, I think, in our industry in terms of how we think about what we do. Uh, scuba diving is a really good example where, you know, knowledge and education is really well respected. And, you know, people have very clear protocols about who they would and wouldn't go out diving with. And we're not quite there yet. I still think there's a number of us that rock up to a trailhead and team up with a group that we don't know their skill set with and go backcountry skiing. But I think we're moving in that direction where education and knowledge is respected uh, and people are more critical about their partner choices. Mm. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of vital to staying safe in the mountains, I think, right? Very much so. You know, and, and when I when I think back to 
when I was younger and doing a lot of mountaineering, you know, I, I knew I knew my partner on the end of the rope pretty damn well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about backcountry skiing, and I think most of us probably don't know our partners as well as that. Right. Uh, and really, a lot of the hazards that we're exposed to are really quite similar. Yeah. You know, maybe not the objective hazards of the rockfall and, and, and falling and so on, um, but we're, we're entering a very similar environment. Uh, and we should maybe stop and think and ask ourselves, well, why don't we know our partner that well? And maybe we should. Mm. So you already am kind of interested in some of the strategies that you have as a advisor to make some of these more complex research ideas and questions digestible to the real world population or not the real world population, but the practitioner population. And so, um, what are, what are some ways that you work with your students to facilitate that? So I think there's a tendency sometimes in science to, um, go to a, a very complex, very convoluted way to, uh, explore something. And I think, you know, as we pick up research papers and we look at what's published, more and more of the work that's published is, is kind of gone through two, three, four, five steps of analysis and is presenting that, that final analysis stage, which is usually involving several models or various analyses. And I think what's important for researchers, undergrads and graduates alike is that we don't want to start there. We want to start mm-hmm. simple, right? So we don't necessarily have to tell this really complicated story to get at what we're doing. Let's let's just look at some really simple things. And when we start getting to the data analysis stage, you know, we can do all sorts of things. We can build neural networks. We can do classification regression trees. We can do cluster analyses. But let's just start with a scatter plot, right? With variable one on one axis, variable two on the other axis. Let's just just do some single variable analyses and say, hey, what's our data look like? What can we see? What are the big drivers in our data? And then once we understand that, let's ask some really specific questions that really allow us to tease that out and use some more advanced tools to sort of present a better story about what's going on. So I think it's about starting simple. Tell a simple story if you can. Uh, and then, then if you need to, elaborate on that with some more detail. Hmm. Um, if you can't explain your main result of a, a research project in less than about a minute or so, you've gone too far for a lot of people. Start simple, wait for the follow-up questions, and then follow in and, and provide some more elaboration. Sure, that makes sense. What uh, what keeps the lights on in this place? You know, like you, you mentioned before that there are research grants and whatnot, but maybe not specific to snow and avalanche and recreation, or maybe there are. Talk a little bit about how how some of this is funded. Yeah, so, uh, you know, research funding continues to, to be a challenge. Um, there's there's certainly plenty of opportunities to apply for funding, but the success rates are, are going down. So uh, you typically, with big research funding agencies like the National Science Foundation here in the US, we're seeing success rates of somewhere between 5 and 8%, depending on the portfolio that you apply to. So if you're a, if, if you're a contractor out there, uh, if you're a builder, if you're a plumber, if you're an electrician, and you put out 10 to 15 bids and only got one, you're out of business, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's no way that you can run a viable business that way. So, I mean, research is being undermined. One of the ways to address that is to diversify the research questions that you ask. Um, maybe to our detriment, I've really tried to focus on avalanches. Uh, there's relatively a little bit more money for snow hydrology questions, for example. 
But I think there's great people that do snow hydrology. Uh, and that's not really a field that, that lights my fire. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's some interesting questions. I think there's some really cool things to be done in there. But I really want to focus on the avalanche side of things and the avalanche-related questions like decision-making. So some of the areas that we've been going on is, is thinking a little more broadly about where else can we get funding to do this type of work. And we've had some success with just smaller pots of money. Our, our graduate students often get uh, apply for small research grants to support their research. So uh, A3, uh, the American Avalanche Association, is an example of uh, an organization that gives out some great grants. Uh, they've just increased their funding pot, so that's really good for our graduate students. Uh, we've had some success with the American Alpine Club as well. Again, just small grants, $500, $1,000. So nothing that's going to sustain a really big program, but it's enough to help a student get out in the field, buy a specific piece of equipment, and collect the data they need for their project. So one of the things that we are fortunate about, especially over here in the earth science part of, of the snow science world, is that we typically don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for really big, fancy equipment. You know, we have, we have our skis, uh, we have our backpacks, uh, we have a couple of snowmobiles, uh, we have a modeling machine to do some of our more advanced modeling in the lab, uh, and, and, we, and we have labor. So a lot of our questions can be answered relatively cheaply. Uh, and I think that's, luckily in this funding environment, we can do that. Mm. If I was more open to uh, trying to apply for funding uh, outside of just the avalanche world, uh, then, then maybe we would have had a little bit more funding for these bigger projects. But I'm really focused on trying to stay centered in terms of what we're interested in and, and what, what defines our lab. Sure. Um, I've heard you talk quite a bit about looking at the decision-making process and and perceived risk of of human-powered backcountry adventures. Any work being done with the motorized community? Yeah, so we, we have done a little bit of work with motorized community. Um, we we haven't broken in with them quite as well as I would have liked. So through the Ski Tracks project, we also launched a, a SLEDS project. Mm. So it was kind of a mirror version of Ski Tracks, but really focused towards the motorized community. The survey uh, had motorized terminology in there, so we weren't sort of just saying, hey, how did you ski the line? It was like, no, how did you ride the line? And, you know, just subtleties like that so that it actually uh, resonated with them. True. But we just didn't do very well at sort of breaking into that community. Uh, I think it's it's a very important question. Um, I think we need to build relationships with people that are out sledding more often. Uh, I have a couple of sleds. I get out of the sled a little bit, but I'm by no means a sledder. You know, mm-hmm. and you'll see me on a sled and you'll know that straight away. Um, so I think that's also part of it is that if you want to study or be part of a community, then you really need to be part of that community. So mm-hmm. it's partly, it's, it's our fault for not really kind of working enough to be part of that community to then start ask, asking some of these questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's some great people in our industry that are really working on that side, that ask letters, that have got avalanche education, that's really starting to get into that issue as well. Right. It just strikes me as a, a community or the industry has maybe deeper pockets than, say, your normal backcountry skier, right? Exactly. As an industry in, in the whole, maybe there's some money there. I don't know. No, I, I think that's very right. The other area that we've uh, also tapped into is obviously we've, we're funded currently uh, with Andrea through the Norwegian Research Council. Mm. So looking outside of the U.S. for funding, um, you know, those things – you know, like any funding are always hard to get as well. Um, but that's been a, a really fun and, and exciting project. It's also provided some resources for, you know, spending more time thinking about these issues. So funding is time. 
And the more funding you have, the more time you can spend on these on these problems. Mm-hmm. So that's been uh, been really refreshing to have as well. Uh, Jerry and I have also worked on uh, a couple of white papers uh, for some DoD funding. So you could imagine that there's some DoD applications about thinking about how people move in complex terrain and make decisions. Uh, that brings up some sort of ethical dilemmas for me. Um, you know, potentially, you know, my one of my driving passions in the avalanche world is is to try and you know reduce fatalities and try and keep people safe. And as soon as we start thinking about DoD type funding, there's the we're keeping one group safe to the detriment of maybe another group in a military type setting. So I, I have some some ethical, emotional challenges with with how far we want to go down that track. But there's certainly overlap in terms of how groups in complex terrain make decisions and how that's represented in terrain and in terms of thought process. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, with the right balance of application, uh, could be something I'd be excited to, to work on in the future. Sure. You already care to share a story of, of your personal skiing or mountaineering where um, maybe you, you made a good or a bad decision out there? Yeah, so in, in general, I think I've become a lot more risk adverse with time. <laughs> uh, I, I look back at some of the trips I've done, um, both successful and, and wildly unsuccessful, <laughs> and and just think I wouldn't be as willing or as tolerant to doing some of those just in terms of the terrain that I was in, given the snowpack or the group that I was in. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll focus on one success story that I, you know, I think what's interesting in the avalanche world is that we don't often get feedback, right? So there's this, this term that we've coined that the wicked learning environment that's been used quite widely where, you know, we get this asymmetric feedback about our decisions. And every time we go out skiing, uh, we don't trigger an avalanche. Uh, we don't kill anyone. Maybe we got some warm thing, but hey, we expected to see it there. We got a crack. Hey, we expected to see it there. So every time we go out, we get more and more information that reinforces how good we are at our decisions and how well we understand the medium and, and how good we are at our job. And then very seldomly do we get this corrective feedback. And when we do, it can be catastrophic and maybe you never live to actually receive that feedback. So it's this very wicked, very convoluted environment that that is hard to get feedback on. And I think one of the uh, one of the most exciting examples I can think of where I got some really nice feedback that I was hoping to see, but it actually happened, was on a big field campaign that I led in New Zealand a number of years ago. So we were uh, we had about thirty people going out into this this big catchment, this big mountain catchment. It was a sort of a hydrology question to measure snow. So they were out to measure snow depth and density, and we had them on various aspects all the way around this probably 30-mile catchment, square-mile catchment. And we'd actually used some heli-ski runs for our access because we knew they were good landing points. So I was in charge of all the logistics, all the safety, of getting all the people in the right spots so they could then descend from the top of the heli-ski run. And instead of heli-skiing where you run that five, six times, you just spend the day. So you just basically pick your way down that slope taking depths and densities as you go. And that way you have a really nice representative sample of what the snow was doing on those slopes. And we'd had probably 25 centimeters of new snow. So what's that, like 10 inches of new snow. Uh, it was springtime, things were warming up pretty quickly. And there was one aspect that I was really not happy about. It was the solar aspect. 
And we wanted to get data on there because we had, obviously, the, the model and the hypotheses would suggest that our solar aspects would be thinner and would melt out faster. So from a scientific perspective, it had value. Uh, but from a logistics and safety perspective, I was like, I just I just don't want to get anyone up there. So we flew up 6 a.m. in the morning and we checked it out and we had a look and I was like, no, we're not going to put anyone up there. And one of my colleagues who was particularly keen on getting data that was representative of the whole catchment was like, oh, I really want to get data up there. And I was like, no, I just not comfortable with this. So we didn't. And I had the groups out. We had about 30, 35 people in the backcountry. We had students from a local university. We had employees. We had volunteers. So a real mix of skill sets all around this mountainside. And I'm coming down on the shady side looking at this huge solar aspect. It must have been an 800, 900 vertical uh, face of about 35 degrees. So perfect ski terrain, right? And uh, I'm sitting there. And it must have been just after lunch, like about one o'clock. We're just stopping, having a bit of a snack. And I look up and about two thirds of the face pulls out mm. and brings this big kind of wet, sloppy avalanche all the way down, moving fairly slowly. I mean, maybe they could have got out of the way if they were there, maybe not. But it went almost the full 800 meters. And it was one of those moments where it's like, okay, I made a fairly conservative choice here, I think. But I got that feedback that was really useful for me but also allowed me to be able to, you know, make the scientific argument that, hey, there are times we you just don't want to be on these slopes. And that's something that I, I carry with me now with my students in that when we go in the backcountry, when we go and collect data, is that they're out there to collect data. They're not out there to ski. And really changing that mindset to say, we're here to collect data and we might use our skis to go somewhere and, and use them as a vehicle to, to move around our objective is to collect really good data today. And by doing that, you just really change the way your decisions are geared and kind of how you look at that terrain. And you look at the terrain to optimize data collection opposed to optimizing fun skiing. Mm -hmm. So that, for me, I think was a really important point where I got some of this great feedback that was like, yeah, today I made the right call. I didn't expose those people at Avalanche like I thought it would. The rest of the slopes were still doing good. And uh, I think it's carried with me in terms of how I think about my terrain use and my data collection days in terrain. Sure. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Yordi. Um, anything else that you, you want to cover with the MSU Snow Science program here? You know, I think one of the things that excites me is the opportunity to see really motivated students come into the program at both the undergrad and graduate level and walk out of here with a really good degree, having done some great research and then contributing towards our community. You know, and, and if I look around at the various avalanche forecasting centers, if I look around at the various guiding operations and uh, also snow, water and hydrology places, you know, MSU grads are really well represented, you know, and, and, and I'm proud of that from an MSU perspective, but I'm really proud of that for the individuals as well. You know, they came, they had a path, they had a goal, they achieved that. Uh, and, and they're doing what they want to be doing, you know, and, and you know, who, who, who wouldn't love that? You know, it's a great outcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that really gives me a lot of energy to come back here every single day and, and kind of keep working and, and thinking of new ways that we can try and answer that problem. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's very rewarding being here, um, kind of in the pinnacle of, of snow and avalanche research in the United States right now and um, must be 
must be pretty exciting to be part of all this research. So um, thanks for taking the time today to sit down and, and give us a glimpse into the program and some of what you've been interested in, in doing research with for the last uh, 10 or so years. So thank you very much. Hey, thanks very much. Thanks for coming. All right. Cheers. Cheers. I hope everybody enjoyed that interview. As stated earlier, I do have a link in the show notes to the the paper we were talking about, um, keeping up with Jeremy Jones, that talks a bit about a bit more about positionality. So check that out. Also, give these guys a follow on the Instagram. They are snow.science, and um, that's the Snow and Avalanche Labs Instagram handle, and and they have some great pictures up there that show some of the students working on their their research projects up in Montana. So give those guys a follow while you're on social media. Give us a follow. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast and that's for Facebook and Instagram. Uh, check out the website www.theavalanchehour.com You can find links to past shows, contributor bios, and we've even got a little store with some swag to help support this show um please rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and if that's too much to ask just tell a friend about the podcast we're on the tell a friend program to spread the word a little bit of news in the snow and avalanche world if you haven't heard the 2020 ISSW that was slated to be in Fernie, British Columbia, has been postponed a year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so I think the word about that is getting spread around, but that's kind of a big deal. And and big thanks to the organizers of the event to have the forethought to, to push that back. I personally think that's a the right call. So if you hadn't heard that, now you have. There you go. Music on today's episode was Up Front by Ketza and Sun Inside by Ketza. And these tracks were made possible through the permission of the artist. Ketza is a musical artist out of the UK, and you can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Our artwork, of course, was done by Mike T. You demand T. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.